again to Philippians chapter 3. Tonight we will finish Philippians chapter 3. And then uh, over the course of the next several weeks, on the 18th and 24th and 25th, I'll be bringing some Christmas messages. So we won't check in with the Apostle Paul in Philippians until we meet with chapter 4 sometime in January. But this evening, Philippians 3, 17 to 21, it's page 981 in the Blue Bible. 981 in the Blue Bible. Philippians 3, 17 to 21. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let's pray. O Lord God, we do thank you for your holy inspired word, and we do now pray for illumination into it, that you would give us eyes to see and to behold things here that are great promises for us to cling to. And we would ask, Lord, that you would help us to treasure these, to live by these, and to walk in ways that please you. And so we pray and ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, this past Friday night, Tammy and I were at Metrotown Mall, and we decided to grab a bite to eat there. And if you know the the parking setup, it's often quite a distance from where the food court is. So we were parked uh, over by where the movie theaters are in the lower parkade, and we walked all the way to the food court. And we had dinner, and we walked almost all the way back to our parking, which is quite a ways, as you some of you will know. And we almost got back there, and Tammy said, I forgot my purse at the food court. And so without a word, I just booked it as fast as I could, as fast as I could drag this 55-year-old carcass sprinting through Metrotown Mall, and people thought I had robbed someplace, I guess. I don't know, but I was going as fast as I could back to that food court, and when I got back to that table where we were, there was a family seated there. And so I asked the man, have you seen a purse? And he said, yes, yes, we turned it into the kiosk, which was right there. And so I went over to the kiosk and the nice lady gave me the purse and everything went well. Disaster was averted until I had a purse in Metrotown Mall and I then had to walk through the mall with a lady's purse. And to top it off, to make matters worse, when I got back to where I left Tammy, she was gone. And so I had to stand another 10 minutes with a lady's purse in Metrotown Mall. But all of that to say, that has nothing to do with the point of the story, all of that to say is that there are good people in this world who don't steal a purse, they actually turn it in and make sure that it gets back to the owner in the rightful place where it should be. And so this dad, and I went back and thanked him, this dad was a good example to his family and to his children. Not to steal, but to make sure that you do the right things in this world. But not everyone is a good example. And Paul here shows us some really horrible, bad examples. And we see here in verse 18 that he calls these people enemies of the cross. Enemies of the cross. And if there's one thing the cross of Christ does is that it screams of human depravity. 
Even this gentleman who would have returned the purse and he's doing a good deed and yet within his soul and within my soul and your soul, we have this depraved nature within us. We're all depraved. Depravity of man is something that the cross of Christ screams of. That if there was another way, if we could find another way, then Christ wouldn't have had to die on that cross. And for those who embrace the cross and are willing to acknowledge their depravity, there is grace. And for those who are not, there's destruction. And so we see that coming out in this passage here. The enemies of the cross, they will be destroyed and it's no contest. Christ is far superior than all. And I want to deal with these enemies of the cross first that we see in verse 18 and 19, then jump back to verse 17 and go through the rest of the passage. And here, just in terms of an outline, we see that there are some pretenders to avoid. We see that in verses 18 and 19. We see some patterns for us to follow in verse 17. We see a place that we are going. Some exciting promises in verse 20 and 21. And then also some promises that we see there in verse 21 that we can cling to. Some promises to cling to. And like much of Paul's writings, we see warnings and we see encouragements. And this passage here is no different. And so first, let's look at verses 18 and 19. These pretenders to avoid, pretenders in religion. And he says here, for many, for many. And the reason we need good examples is because around us there's so many bad ones. And so to have good examples is a good thing. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. We read in that passage earlier from Acts, it says there twice that Paul was in tears. And often his tears are as a result of false teaching, false doctrine. It brought him to tears to see what these people were doing in congregations that he was establishing in the gospel, and yet they were straying from it. I tell you even with tears that these people walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So they are walking. They're part of the visible church, walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And Paul has warned the Philippian church about false doctrine before, false teachers. And we saw that early on in chapter 3, these people that he calls dogs. And there is some a debate in the theological world, whether he's talking here about the Judaizers again that he began the chapter with, or if he's talking about other Gentile heretics. But I think that some of these things fit the Judaizers and others perhaps might fit more of the other heretical teachings that were around during that time. But we see enemies of the cross of Christ. That's the first thing that we take note of in these characteristics of these pretenders we need to avoid their enemies of the cross of Christ. And if it's the Judaizers, these dogs, these evildoers that he talks about back in verse 2, these were people that distorted the gospel. If you'll remember, they're enemies of the cross of Christ because they nullified the gospel. They stand against what the cross stood for, salvation by grace alone in Christ's atoning work alone. But he could also be speaking of antinomians, those who are against the law. They perhaps know God has a will. They have know that he has decrees. They know that he has a plan. He knows, they know perhaps that we should live in a certain way, and yet they err on the side of grace continually and are presumptuous in what little faith that they may have. 
And so we see here that it could apply both ways to these other heretics, the antinomians or the Judaizers. The Judaizers added to the Gospels, these other, added to the Gospel, the other Gentile heretics flaunted their liberty in the Gospel. They subtracted from the Gospel. And then in verse 19, it lists four more characteristics of these pretenders, that their end is destruction. They think that they're doing the right thing. They think they're on the right path, and yet their end is destruction. And I don't know about you, but some of the scariest verses in the Bible are found in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. These are very scary verses. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Their end is destruction. And what a sobering warning that is, especially to people who might be inside the church, to missionary workers, pastors even. It is a great warning to see here that people were doing things seemingly in Christ's name, and yet in the end, they are called workers of lawlessness whose end is destruction. So the narrow way is Christ's way. And it's the only way that leads to life. In that passage there in Matthew chapter 7, Christ talks about the broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow path that leads to life. And we need to make sure that we are following Christ on that narrow way. And then the other characteristic we see is that the God, that their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. Now what does that mean? Well, if it's the Judaizers, it could have something to do with all the dietary laws. You can eat this and you can't eat that. Or it could be a metaphor for unrestrained pursuit of sensual pleasures that these people, these Gentile heretics, just getting, getting their fill of whatever they want to do in this world, whatever pleasure they can find, that's what they're going to do. And in light of the next characteristic, that's probably the correct interpretation here for that. They glory in their shame. They are warped. They're blinded. They have everything twisted around, much like what we were talking about earlier a few weeks ago with the Apostle Paul, what he called rubbish. The idea of that accounting practice that he, that he had before he was a believer, where he valued certain things in the Jewish world and then found them to be rubbish concerning salvation and concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. In comparison to the worth that is found in Jesus Christ, they are as nothing. They glory in their shame. And we see a lot of that in our culture today, don't, don't we? People glorying in their shame. Gay pride, for instance. People glorying in their shame. And I read this quote this past week and I thought it was so good uh, in relation to this phrase here that they glory in their shame. They glory in what is shameful. And one commentator says here on this phrase that this is the most extreme form of wickedness. When a sinner's most wretched conduct before God is his highest point of self-exaltation. We certainly see that in our culture. The highest point of self-exaltation is the most wretched conduct before God. And so Paul goes on to say here that they have minds set on earthly things. That they're getting their fill in this world without any regard for the next world. Just getting whatever pleasure they can out of this world. Enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. And Paul is warning us with this description that there are enemies of the cross. 
There are enemies of the cross. And the cross symbolizes sacrifice. And these people don't sacrifice anything. They indulge in everything. And that is what characterizes them. They have minds set on earthly things. And fortunately for us in this passage, Paul also sets before us good examples of which he is one. And some of you sitting here might be good examples as well. And we're going to find that out here. In verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Join in imitating me. Mimic me is actually the word that he uses here for imitate. Mimic. Paul says, imitate me. Follow my lifestyle. Follow the things that I am doing and engaged in. And not only that, follow others who are also engaged in these things. And this isn't the only time that Paul encourages people to follow him. It's quite a, quite a phrase, isn't it? It's quite a thing to say, follow me. Shouldn't we be telling people to follow Christ? Well, we're to follow people as far as they're following Christ in that way. But he says that at least twice in Corinthians and elsewhere. And it's an awesome responsibility to be an example. And the reality for us is that all of us are an example to somebody. All of us are. We're an example as believers to somebody else. It's a responsibility that we all have regardless of our age. Whether we are a young child that's in school, we have siblings, we have uh, parents, parents to children, um, office bearers, whatever it is, whatever title we hold, whatever role and responsibility we have in this world, we have a responsibility to be an example to people around us. Everyone is an example to someone. Everyone is an example to someone. And the only question is, what kind of example are we setting? Are we a good godly example? Or do we characterize like this list that was before us earlier, where we have our minds set on earthly things. And some examples in this world show us things not to do. We learn by poor examples of things not to do. And other examples we want to strive for, like the Apostle Paul, like some of the people that he's listed here for us in chapter uh, Two that, or chapter, yeah, chapter two that we looked at several weeks ago. We see a number of different examples there. First and foremost, of course, verses seven of, and eight of chapter two, where it talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, how he emptied himself, how he took the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men. He was humiliated. He humbled himself, being obedient to the Father's will, going even to the cross, to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then we saw also there we saw the Apostle Paul and how he was poured out as a drink offering. We saw Timothy and Epaphroditus and how Paul says of Timothy that I have no one like him, that he was a true shepherd of the church of God. They had no one that he could commend to the church of Philippi like Timothy. And then Epaphroditus, of course, who he says he's a worker, a soldier, a messenger, a minister. What great commendations these are and examples to follow. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul again in 2.29 where he says, honor such men. Here in our passage in 3.17, imitate me. And then also, if you cast your eyes over to chapter 4 and verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And what's going to happen? And the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. Follow me and the God of peace will be with you. We see all of these examples here listed. Now, some of you are examples too. 
great examples, great encouragement to your families, great encouragement to the people of God. And so these are things that we need to strive for, to be a good example. Everyone is an example to someone. And maybe in your life, and I want you to think about at least one person in your life, maybe that person's now in glory. Maybe that person is still alive and with you and an encouragement to you. But think of one person, one person who's been a great example to you in your life. And I hope that you can think, please say yes, that you can think of one person. Because if you can't, that is a great travesty. We should have examples that we can point to that have gone before us, that are walking alongside of us, that are an encouragement to us. And I hope that you can say yes, that you have that example. Everyone influences someone. And we should all be seeking to influence people in a good and godly way and to be that role model. Parents with children, teachers with children they have in the classroom, office bearers to congregants, whatever it is, we all need to remind ourselves that we have that role and responsibility. Now those poor examples that he spoke of earlier, their end is destruction. But Paul says, we have a different place. We have a different home. We have a place that we are going to. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And the worldly focus, people that are worldly focus on the here and now. People that are godly focus on that forwarding address we're all going to have in heaven with our Savior. The Christian reminds himself that he's just deployed here. He's a soldier on deployment. And he's not to fall in love with the place in which he's been deployed to. We're not to fall in love with this world or the things of the world. The Christian reminds himself that life is short and eternity is long and we should be the most prepared for that place in which we are going to spend the most time. Eternity. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now some of you understand the concept of citizenship quite well. Some of you have become new citizens of Canada within the last several years. Others of you perhaps might be waiting for citizenship. But the people in Philippi would have understood citizenship very well as well because they were a Roman colony. So what that meant was even though they didn't live within Rome, obviously, they're 800 miles away from Rome, and yet as a Roman colony, they had all of the rights and privileges of the citizens of that very city of Rome. So they had all the protections of Roman soldiers, They had the culture of the Romans. They had the dress of the Romans. They had all these different things that were Roman. They had allegiance to the Roman government. They followed Roman customs. They spoke Latin and Greek. And they knew what it was like to be this citizenship, to have this citizenship of of this Roman colony. And one early church historian said of Christians back in the early church during these times, that following the practices of the regions in clothing and in food and in outward things of life generally, but they, that's Christians, manifest a wonderful and openly paradoxical character of their own spiritual state. They inhabit the lands of their birth, but as temporary residents thereof. They take their share of all responsibilities as citizens and endure all disabilities as aliens. They pass their days upon the earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. And that is the reality for all of us. We are sojourners passing through. And we should not fall in love with this world or the things of this world and grow and cling tightly to the things of this world, but hold them very, very loosely. And then we see here that we have some promises that we need to cling to. We see here 
that for our encouragement, the Apostle Paul gives us several promises here. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. A number of promises there that we need to take note of. First and foremost, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a great promise this is. Now it's coming upon, uh, obviously, the Christmas season, the Advent season, where we consider the first Advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, His first coming. But we always want to consider, along with His first coming, His second coming. That should always be part of what we consider during this time of season, during the Christmas season. We await a, a Savior. And it is the idea here, this awaiting is the idea of eager expectation. We await eagerly. I know some of you are young and in love. And when your, uh, perhaps your, your spouse-to-be is, is coming over to pick you up, to take you out for dinner, there's an eager expectation there. You're going to see him or her. You're going to be together again. That idea of that eager expectation is what we are looking for in the Lord Jesus Christ. We look wantingly towards that. And it's not a waiting for the Lord so that we can get out of that final exam next week. Or so that we don't have to pay off our, all of our Christmas present debt on our credit cards. Not that kind of waiting to see what we're going to get out of but we're going to see what the Lord Jesus Christ is going to provide for us. That transformation that He provides for us. We are going to be eternally Christ-like. And we saw that earlier. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at Christ-likeness and we see that we will be eternally Christ-like because of what the Lord Jesus Christ does here in verse 21. He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. It's another great promise. Transformation. Who doesn't want that? Transformation. Yes, we are transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We have the Holy Spirit within us, but we still await that final transformation, that final um, resurrection body that we will inherit. And sometimes in the Bible, the word transform comes from the word metamorphosis, but that's not the word used here. It's metaschematic. Metaschematic. And what that means is that Christ's body is the schematic for what our body will be. We will be like Him in body. Transformed to be like His glorious body. And now you might be young here and of age where you think that you don't have a lowly body, you don't have a vile body, you're in the best condition, you are fit. You just wait a few years. All that's going to come apart. You are going to lose, as one person said, uh, you are going to lose and you are going to gain. You're going to lose your hair. You're going to lose your teeth, perhaps. And then you're going to gain. You're going to gain pounds. You're going to gain gray hair. All of these different things where we see this lowly body that's decaying slowly before our very eyes. We see that it is truly a vile body. This lowly, vile body subject to sickness, subject to sin. And that is one of the great things to me about finally being with the Lord, finally arriving at that heavenly kingdom that I am a citizen of, and I hope you are too, that I will no longer sin against my Savior. Won't that be a great, great day where we will no longer sin against the Savior? Oh, how I'm looking forward to that. 
no longer sinning against the Savior. When He appears, we will be like Him. We will shed this corruption and we will take on the incorruptible. And this is a great promise for us because some of us are suffering physically right now. We feel that very acutely where our bodies perhaps are falling apart. It's very painful, it's very agonizing, and it seems relentless. And some of us are suffering mentally and emotionally in ways that are excruciating and seem to never, never end. You go to bed at night and you have that dark cloud over you. Perhaps you wake up in the middle of the night and you wake up the next morning and that dark cloud is still there. These oppressions that we feel in this vile body and we wonder how we can face another day. These things seem to be so relentless upon us. But it's not always going to be that way. The Apostle here reminds us, and he reminds us elsewhere, Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We're going to experience such a glory that the sufferings we go through now are of no comparison. And then also in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. All the things that we go through now, all of the things that we will inherit in the next world, all of these things will seem light and momentary in comparison because we have an eternity full of all of the riches of Christ. And if there's one thing that we've learned from the Apostle Paul is that the Apostle Paul knew affliction. He knew trouble in this world and in this life. He knew sufferings. But the great thing about the Apostle Paul is that he didn't wallow in self-pity. He didn't wallow in sufferings. He didn't wallow in the past. He points us to our future. And he points us to the glory that we have in our Savior who also knew sufferings. The Lord Jesus Christ, a man of sorrows who knew suffering. He was a man of sorrows who endured sorrow and suffering. Why? For the joy that was set before him. That our joy may be complete. And so we see here that he gives us a future and a hope. Every disease, every sickness, every sinner is never beyond that transforming power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ will at the end of verse 21, subject all things to himself. And this should be a great comfort to us, that the Lord Jesus Christ has the power to subject all things to himself. And on that consummation day, we will see that resurrection power at work within us and those around us. We will see that resurrection power. And on that great day, every last single adversary and enemy and person who is an enemy of the cross of Christ and His kingdom, will be completely conquered, completely vanquished. Matthew Henry says, not only he who has the power of death, that is the devil, but the last enemy shall be destroyed, that is death. Death shall be swallowed up in victory. And it will be a sweet victory. Christus victor. Christ will be victorious over sin, over Satan, over every enemy of the cross. Is that where your hope and trust lies? Have you pinned your eternity on the Lord Jesus Christ and the promises that He beholds for us in passages like this? If not, your end is destruction. Your end is destruction. 
All of the promises of His first advent were fulfilled perfectly. All of the promises that we have in God's Word for His second advent will be perfectly fulfilled, just as He says. And we will receive an inheritance that far outweighs all of the sufferings we go through in this world. We see that in these promises, that there will be no more suffering in this body, there are no more sinning against our Savior. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank you for these words of encouragement to our hearts tonight. We thank you that we, in Christ, in Christ are victorious and outside of Christ are destined for destruction. And I pray that that is not the end of any person sitting here. I pray that everyone sitting here has embraced our Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord, as their Savior, and is putting their full trust in Him, that they are resting and reposing on Christ alone for salvation. And we pray that if that is not the case, that it would be the case, that no one would leave here until they have done that and put their faith and their trust in our Lord Jesus. And we thank you, O God, for these promises and pray that you would help us to be encouraged this week by them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.